everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Bible Discoveries, the weekend show. As always, we're reading through the Bible this year and we are taking some time today to discuss some of your questions that you sent in, hopefully answer some of them, or at least begin to answer them, give you a diving board to go off of and do yeah. deeper study. I'm here with Matlock. How's it going, Matlock? Good. How are you doing? Good. Yeah, I'm doing good. 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 I've got some hot chocolate in my one of my two mugs. Yeah. So I'm pretty happy about it. Is the one not Some your hot chocolate. Somewhat, no, that one's yours. Oh, okay. We both got two. All right. It's a good day when you've got multiple beverages <laughs> yeah, beside right. you. You know what I mean? I, it is. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> okay, what was our assigned reading this week? What right. chunk of the scriptures well, were we to yeah, have If read? you're following Bible discovery and you're reading through the Bible in a year, you're reading Leviticus 5 to 27, which means that this week is all Leviticus and we finish Leviticus because that's <clears> the last <throat> chapter is 27. Indeed. Anyways, so, Corey... Yes. We had a lot of questions today pertaining to Leviticus. Not really. We had <laughs> I was like, one oh, question. I'm surprised. We normally don't get a lot of Levitical <laughs> yeah. questions. Yeah, we have no questions. We, we have one, but it's really talking about Genesis, but it, it's, it's dealing with Leviticus also. Okay. Anyways, but so that's why today it's going to be a little bit different. Normally, we have the big question at the beginning. We answer it at the beginning. And then, sorry, we discuss the big question <laughs> wait, at the wait end. Wait a second. <laughs> we, I verbalize at the beginning, we wait, and then at the very end, we have a whole discussion. This is going great so far. Yeah, it's going fantastic, <laughs> right? Anyways, we're actually going to do it in the beginning because it's the only, it deals with Leviticus to some extent. That's Anyways, fabulous. So we're going to deal with Leviticus, the big question. Yeah. Then we're going to deal with the viewer question, which pertains to Leviticus 11 and Genesis 7. Perfect. Then the rest of the questions that we have pertain to Genesis because... Lo and behold, we haven't answered all the Genesis questions. We've gotten bombarded with Genesis questions. And you know what? I think that's fair because there's so much historical narrative yeah, that happens true. in Genesis. So fair. It's true. Fair play, guys. So let's open up with the big question. Yes. Yeah. It's kind of weird in my mind, but we're just going to do it. We're doing okay. it. We're switching so, things up. It's good to do a little shake up every yeah, now and then. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> all right. You're uh, undecided <laughs> of whether this is a good thing or not. Oh, we're just going to do it. All right. So, Corey, the big question is, I should have called the little questions. It doesn't matter. Semantics. Why is the New Testament written like Leviticus? Why isn't it? Yeah. Why is it not? Why is the New Testament not written like yes. Leviticus? Yes. To correct right. the grammar of the question. Yes. <laughs> so, it's like the law of Moses vis-a-vis the law of Christ. What's going on there? What's going on? Yeah. Right. What do you think, Corey? Right. I guess because you could make the argument the if we're all if we're all priests of God, right? Yeah. Jesus as the high priest and we're all priests, then we're Levites. And Leviticus is instruction. I'm I'm just breaking down the question. Leviticus is instructions to the Levites. So why is the New Testament not more instructional yeah, in like, terms of like laying down laws and procedures? Yeah, exactly. Like what's going on? Right. Like so it's because it's because we're in an, under a different covenant, essentially. We are under a different covenant than the Mosaic covenant. So this was the nation of Israel's covenant. And the Old Testament actually talks about, it prophesies that there is a new covenant coming. And it, and it prophesies right. that several times. But one of my favorites is in Jeremiah. Classic, classic new covenant text. <laughs> Jeremiah 31. I will get there eventually. I'm just going to awkwardly drink my... That's perfect. Yeah. A little bit of a little bit of awkward sipping mm. is good. Let me know when you get there. I went one too far. So mm. Jeremiah thirty one is a big right. chapter. It is. We're gonna start in thirty one. I think we're gonna go. I don't know. We'll see, Brandon. I'm talking to our editor now. Jeremiah thirty one, beginning in verse thirty one. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So it's only one time where the Old Testament talks about the new covenant. There's a lot, even I think it's in Deuteronomy 31, Moses even prophesies that there will be a new covenant that's not going to be a law written on tablets of stone that Moses carried, but it will instead be written on the hearts of the people. Right. And then you jump over. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 3. I'm going to jump to Hebrews 8 for a second. All right. But 2 Corinthians 3 is a good one. Yeah. Um, Hebrews 8 says, <laughs> I know I'm deciding where I'm going to start reading. <laughs> the Jeopardy music's not a bad idea. Yeah. Um, and, and, okay. Filling in space, filling in space. Dead air, dead air, dead air. Hebrews 8, I'm just going to start in verse 1. <laughs> after all that, after <laughs> all that, guys, I'm starting at the beginning. All right. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They those, uh, the physical human priests that he's referring back to the Levites of Leviticus, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And then it goes on to quote um, one of the prophecies from the Old Testament that's talking about the new covenant. So essentially what he's saying there is that, and, and there's, it's a recurring theme throughout Hebrews because Hebrews looks back at the Old Testament and shows how Christ fulfilled the, fulfilled it in the New Testament, mm. old covenant, new covenant. Essentially what it's saying is these were a shadow, like the, the law of Moses and, and the, the, the structure of the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the offerings that are explained in Leviticus these are all a shadow, a foreshadow pointing to Christ, pointing to the ultimate reality. They have substance, but not ultimate substance. Christ is the ultimate substance. So now we're living under a new covenant that has similarities to, but is not the same as the old covenant of the, of the Old Testament. Um, 
Yeah. Do you want to jump in? Do you yeah, want to add things read, to it? Yeah, here's 2 Corinthians 3 to add to this uh, discussion. Um, I'll just start in verse 1 and read to verse uh, 6. Um, no, I'll read to verse 7. I'm doing you again. I'm just going to keep reading. I know, my indecisive scripture yeah, reading. Keep reading. I'm just going to start in verse 1 and keep going. All right, so are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? For if the glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. So Leviticus was always temporal. Uh, the law of Moses was temporary. It was a stepping stone. Yes, it was. Stepping stone to the new covenant to where Christ writes his name in your hearts. He indwells you. Because you have a heart of stone. He gives you a heart of flesh. Uh, the Spirit indwells you, right? The Holy Spirit um, is the stuff that was always prophesied about that God would, as you said in Jeremiah 31, God was going to reside in you. And because of that, it is a better covenant because God is restoring what he had in Eden. It's, it's going back to, to the Adamic covenant, to Adam and Eve, um, the way man and humanity once were, which is restoring the Edenic uh, world. So yes, it is It is even more so, even better than before. We just, when we say restoring the Edenic world, we don't mean like it's a one-for-one one conversion backwards. We're saying that it's going to get, it's better, mm -hmm. but like Eden. Anyways, so yeah, I completely agree with you. It just, it's not really like Leviticus because you don't need to have all these instructions, methodologies, and procedures anymore because the law is written on your hearts and that you're moving forward in that direction. And all mm -hmm. the things, all the laws and procedures were always signs. Like we talked about last time. They were just signs that were pointing to the substance of Christ. Mm -hmm. And these signs are shadows. Mm -hmm. They're not the substance. And I mean, like when you look at when when you look at the council uh, of Acts 15, right? When when the Christians who uh, when the Gentile Christians begin to be a thing, um, because at first it's just Jewish believers, right? It's it's because Jesus came in a Jewish context. And so the first believers in Christ, the first Christians are Jewish Christians. So they're still abiding by the Mosaic law. And then all of a sudden there's these Gentile Christians who aren't and the Holy Spirit is filling them. And and, and it's, it's a very confusing situation because yeah. they're like, well, what does this mean? Um, and I think it's really interesting to look at the response of James. And it's interesting to look at the response of Peter who stand up and they say, but why would we impose on them something that God has not imposed on them and something that we nor our forefathers have been able to bear? Yeah. We all know that we have fallen under the system. It wasn't a perfect system. Um, 
kind of branching off from there, I think, I think that there are certain personalities that really struggle with the concept that the new covenant isn't like the old covenant in this way. Because right. there's certain personalities who like structure. Yeah. They like rules, they like procedures, and they think that the world would be a better place if we were very, very legislated like right. ancient Israel was legislated. And I mean, take that up with God. On the one on the one hand, I'm like, take that up with God. That's not what he's done. Right. But on the second hand, you know what else is good? Struggle. Struggling with God over your morality is also very good. Right. And we see that especially like in the time period of the patriarchs, which I know isn't a bastion for morality and neither is our day now. But the concept of the, of the, of the new Christian covenant is that we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit and the morality of God hasn't changed. So we still do have laws in that way, right? There's moral laws of God. There is a right and wrong. There's an objective truth and false. We get all of that. Um, but it is a very good thing to internally struggle with God and, and have that actual relationship where you're going back and forth and not have God be outside of yourself where it's just like, well, that's the rule, so do it. In now, now that the rule is inside, God is living with us and dwelling with us. We're able to struggle with God as Jacob struggled with God. Right. Do you see where I I'm kind of going with and this? To add, just so no one gets confused, um, there's nothing wrong with legislation or moral, moral legislation. Yes, I it's agree. Just, it's just a matter of whether or not that's all there is to go on. So, in other words, if you just have ink, yes, that's not a good thing. Not uh, a good because thing. it's. Because the difficulty is, it's um, this is where you got to that legalism with uh, you creating uh, laws on top of laws on top of laws. Yeah, if the situation ink, that Christ walked right, into. That's exactly was right. laws on laws. Exactly, and that's but less heart. Exactly, it, get, it gets removed. It, it ends up blurring together because it's like, well, why isn't this ink worth more than this ink? Right. Put it that way. Anyways, um, so that's what's important there. So it's not saying that legislation is wrong. Um, at the same token. Uh, I think that once again, structures, procedures, those things, those things are good things. I think that rituals, for instance, are good things. We have rituals. We have baptism, right? We yep. have communion. We have rituals that we do. We have worship services. We yeah. have we each we, we each dinner. should all have. I was going to go there. Yeah, we yeah. each should all have personal rituals in terms of our devotion to God. Right. So times of prayer, times of scripture reading, times of fasting, even times of like there's so many different um, personal. I don't know what else to call them other than, I mean, I guess today it's more common to call them disciplines. Yes. But essentially disciplines are rituals. They're things that we do over mm. and over again. Um, and, it, and it demonstrates our, it demonstrates and it grows our relationship with God. Right. And it doesn't have to be demonstrative in terms of it's for other people to see, but it's, it's between us and God, right? We right. all have these rituals and they are good things. And I'm not against corporate ritual either. I think corporate ritual can be great. Right. As what, long as it doesn't get, get off track. What point to? Exactly. Oh, it's important to God. So anyways, for it. long Great. story short, <laughs> I, I think that's a pretty good job. We can stop there. Okay, I, I'm going to move on to the next question sure. then. Okay. Uh, which is for you. All right, okay. let's do it. Viewer question from Mark. All right. He's, he asks, how might the concept of clean and unclean animals exist so long before God's teaching in Moses' book of Leviticus? God's word is true beyond a doubt. So I'm content to surmise that he gave this information directly to Noah beforehand. 
but just curious if there's any scriptural evidence of this definition being spelled out in Genesis. So he's talking about the the laws of the clean and unclean animals yes. that we read about in Leviticus, but how is it that God could say to Noah, take seven pairs of clean animals right. on the ark and if the law of Moses had not yet been written okay. describing what clean and unclean animals were? Right. Okay. So I don't, there's no, and his last question is, is there any evidence of this in Genesis of clean and unclean? So right. I don't think there is, especially at the time of Noah, that there is evidence of there being concept of unclean, unclean. Uh, even Paul says, you know, I don't believe things are, uh, unclean in and of themselves. In other words, when God created things, he didn't create unclean and clean animals. Uh, these things happen afterwards. So I think uh, what's happening is Moses has documented what happened in the flood, you know, whether or not that is by oral tradition or by documents that have been saved. He's, he's recounting it. And he notices that um, you have uh, Moses saving seven cows. So Moses writes down, you know, the... Uh, seven clean animals there was more clean animals that were used in other words um moses is simply saying he's importing the language he's importing the language from what he's dealing with in the exodus he's importing it you know on top of it saying look he saved these animals which they would all know because he's writing genesis at the same time as exodus it's all happening relatively at the same time so in my head he's just simply saying oh look he's these are the clean animals they saved. These are the unclean animals they saved. Not that Noah would know that, but Except Moses is the one that, documented. Yes, like I agree right. with you with the, the, the language is being imported for sure. I don't yeah. think that Noah necessarily had to say that it's clean animals, right. right? But the clean animals specifically were for sacrifice. Like that's why he brought those extra yes. animals. Right. So the fact that they were animals that later on were determined to be clean by Was, the Mosaic right. law is potentially evidence that that appropriate sacrificial animals were known by the time yes. of Noah. No, that there yes, were in a, sure. they, that they that they believed there were inappropriate and appropriate animals for sacrifice. Right. Right. And that could be passed along from Adam and Eve. Because sacrifices started right after, right? We see Cain and yes. Abel offering right, right. sacrifices. And um a little bit later on, it says men began to call on the name of the Lord. Mm -hmm. um, so intimating they're not living in the presence of God anymore. It's not a normal thing, um, among other things. I know I know there's a right. lot of like back and forth on that. But there's no, there's no evidence of the method, like the method of no one knowing or whether that was a new thing that God was telling him. That's not explained no. at all. But I don't think it's a stretch to, to think that um, this concept of what was an appropriate sacrifice was around. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree with you. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I think it could be either or. It could either be Moses importing and saying, hey, look, uh, Genesis 7-2, uh, God says to Moses, take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, male and his mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. That could be importing just from Moses. Mm -hmm. Or like you said, uh, sacrifice has already been established with, you know, with through Cain. And so they had an idea that like, we sacrifice these kind of animals. Yeah. Right? And we don't sacrifice these kind of animals. Yes. But whether or not the word clean and unclean was used, that terminology is up for debate. Anybody's guess. It might not have been yeah. used at all. It could have just simply been, no, these are the animals that were, you know, that represent what's going to come or whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. It could just be pro strictly prophetic. Mm -hmm. um, without there being uh, any type of like... Um, I don't know, like a moral attachment or anything like that. Yeah, law. for sure. Because I mean, even even in later Genesis, you see offerings of what would 
what would be classified as clean animals, like oxen and mm -hmm. sheep and goats and birds. Um, but you don't see like carrion birds being, I mean, not that it goes into great detail, but every time it tells you what animals are being sacrificed, they happen to be on that clean animal yes. list, acceptable sacrifice lists. So that knowledge has been around for a while at least. Right. Right? So like the, the concept of what's an appropriate sacrifice and what's not. Right. And I mean, that's, that's a bit, that's, it also happens to be things that humans regularly domesticate and, and yes. um, farm is and what I'm saying. Or, wild or, animals that, yeah. Yeah, that are considered dirty. <clears throat> well, like even consider. Yeah. Right, yeah. No, I, you could catch birds right. for, for um, sacrifices, but not carrion birds. Right. But everyone knew what a carrion bird was. Like we, we know as kids, even growing up, what carrion birds are. You see a crow eating roadkill, you're like, oh. Yeah. But you don't see like sparrows eating roadkill. <laughs> it's right. different. It is different. Yeah. Yeah. I also think there's an interesting relationship between the clean animals, the symbols, the, you know, let's say the lamb, like mm -hmm. a dove, and it's a relationship that they're sacrificed mm -hmm. as opposed, right? And then they also represent, let's say, the Holy Spirit or, or humans. Yeah. So it's interesting that you have this symbolic relationship between the two. Definitely. Like that's the sacrifice, mm -hmm. right? Whereas like the wild ones are not worthy of sacrifice. So sacrifice gets to a higher echelon yes. of importance. Yeah. Uh, it really boils it down to like, what is the meaning of sacrifice mm -hmm. and why are you entailed there? Mm -hmm. and, it, and it is also interesting too that, that like pigs aren't mentioned. I haven't done a study on this. Pigs definitely aren't mentioned in early Genesis at all. Maybe right. they weren't even native to the area. Probably not. They were probably more native to Gentile areas. But by the time of the kings, of Israel, like when archaeologists dig in Israel, yeah. they know what is an Israelite site. And when they dig outside, like when they dig in Jordan, they know what is an Israelite site and what is not, even in the time by period of the kings, bones. by the bones. Because right. at Israelite sites, there are no, like pig, there are no pig right. bones. Right. There are none. And you're saying also too, they discovered chicken bones at a later date. Like they had yeah, like, yeah, yeah, right. Like yeah. There's no chicken. Time period in of the kings, yeah, right. And in like there's... early, like uh, before the Iron Age, there's no. Like in Bronze Age, there's no chicken bones. And then in the Iron Age, the time period of the kings, there's chicken bones. Oh, so man. we know that chicken domestication came over. So someone probably just brought yeah. it. Some traveler. Oh, man. Some trader. And here we are today. Some chickens. Everyone billions here we are today. We also know, they also know, archaeologists <laughs> know um, where the, uh, so the, the only evidence, I've talked about this on another weekend show, so I won't like go into it uh, too much, but where they excavated, um, the first evidence of honeybee keeping um, in Tel Rehov, right. they can tell where the bees were imported from, which is very cool. Really? Yes. And I think it's by the by the remains. I'm trying to remember. It's been years. It's been years, but it's fun. It's hmm. so fun to look at. Okay. Do you think we should move on? Let's move on. To the next question. All right, Corey. Okay. Genesis 6. Genesis 6. So. For you. For what? me. Do you want to read it or do you want me to read it? I want to read it and explain what you to answer okay, it. Sure. Or do you want me to answer <laughs> no, it? No, you can. No, go ahead. It's going great still. <laughs> yeah, let's go. Just go for it. Okay, this is from Dave. Okay. Been thinking about regrets. God regrets. <laughs> regrets? No regrets. No, no. regrets. Okay. Been thinking about God regrets. Genesis 6, verses 6 and 7. Uh, and it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Question, how does God, who knows everything, grieve and repent that he created the earth and man? Insight, as any parent knows, having children does not guarantee their hearts will not grieve over bad choices children will make. Question, but would parents be repentant over creating their children as God apparently does? Just thinking. Thank right. you. Right. 
Okay, so start off, let's start with the word grieve. So yeah, grieving is something that's very normal. So God experiences, you know, obviously more intense and higher emotions than we do, but he experiences emotions like us. Yeah. So he's not just a radically different. Our emotions come from somewhere. That's right. Mm -hmm. Christ ascended to heaven, right? His human nature and his divine nature. The human nature is unified with the divine nature. So it's like he understands what it's like to be us. So he grieves. We even get this in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit, don't grieve the Holy Spirit is the idea where it's mm -hmm. like, don't go actively sinning so that the Holy Spirit grieves and like uh, laments over you essentially. It's just not good. Um, so yes, he can grieve, which means that he can also have different emotions that are, that are like mm -hmm. us, um, obviously in a higher form. So we think about this word regrets or the word repent, right, in Genesis 6. Um, we have to think about like, what's happening in the overall context of yes. the story. Right. So, uh, for instance, uh, Corey, we were talking about this earlier. The word repent refers to just stop what you're doing, right, and turn a different it's direction. Functional. It's, it's a verb. Yeah. Yeah, it's functional. Yeah. And so, like, we see right after 6 and 7, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. What does he say? In verse seven, he says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But verse eight says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So his repentance is functional. Right. It's a verb. He's saying, we're done here. Right. Right. Like he is going to actively uncreate mankind save for Noah. So it's not a complete destruction, but he is he is functionally right. repenting of his creation of mankind. He's destroying yes. them. And and also too it and he's not also he's not just like he's not repenting like, oh I'm sorry. I like I blew it. That's not mm -hmm. what he's doing. He's looking at man being like he regrets like look at man's state. Man's in the most utterly depraved like position. And he and he, he repents from like man. Like man's just like has gone overboard. And so he's looking at mankind and being like, like I, I regret for your own sake that you for what you've become, essentially. It has nothing to do with God saying, oh, I, I made a mistake. It's nothing like that. He's not repenting. He didn't make a mistake. He's, he's repenting on behalf of man because of man is so depraved. Um, and so it's one of those things where it's like, the, take the higher, when it comes to some of these anthropomorphic languages, take the higher root. Like yeah. he, it's like when a child, your child does something wrong, right? You could feel terrible for that child and look at that child and be like, oh, this is just terrible, right? You know, even if they, even if your child does something terribly wrong, like you see in the, the, the accounts of Noah um, and Noah's time. So you look at them, it's like you repent that this, this situation even happened, um, which means you're going to try in there and stop it, but you're not yourself the problem. You're not the self at fault. I'm not, I'm not repenting because I did something wrong. I had to go in there and you're saying and stop it from continuing mm -hmm. for their own sake. Mm -hmm. um, so he's he's trying to help man stop himself. And by virtue of having a flood, uh, typically people repent on their deathbed. That is typically like when you get pushed to the, like when your life is on the line, that is when people repent. So anyways, I always say this is more of a repentance for mankind rather than God repenting of what he has done. Yeah, and I would say, I would say that that God's repentance is meant to be understood as functional. Yes. It's meant to be understood as like a verb. He's not repenting to himself in terms of, I wish I never made mankind. Mm. Like I like he's actually undoing 
Yeah. His creation of mankind. He's sorry and that he starting made, again. Yes, he's sorry that he man, made mankind for mankind's like because of what mankind has yes, become in of yes. himself. And then also I wanted to mention, I mean, it's touched on a little bit about in the question with the parents and children analogy, but I just wanted to kind of underline this point too, where we know grieving isn't constrained by foreknowledge. So the fact that God was grieved over the choices of mankind and the state of mankind doesn't mean that he was surprised by the choices and the state of mankind. Right. He knew it was going to happen, right? Because the rest of the Bible teaches that he has foreknowledge. He knows what the future is. He knows what mankind is going to choose and what they're going to decide and how it's going to go. But we even know in our own lives that grieving isn't constrained by foreknowledge. You know this if you've ever ha had to um, walk, a, uh, walk a close relative or close friend through a, um, a terminal illness. You know what is going to happen. Yeah. But you still grieve when they pass on. Yeah. You still grieve. You still go through that emotion when it's happening. So we know even, even in our own lives that grieving isn't constrained by foreknowledge. So I don't think we can, I don't think it's then fair of us to say, well, this proves that God doesn't have foreknowledge. Do you know what I mean? I know oh, some people do do that. I know that's that? not what, I know that's not what Dave's doing, but I, I have heard the argument where God clearly doesn't have foreknowledge because then how could he be grieved? How could he repent? Oh, how man. could he do these so things? So many times I see our kids like, about to do something and I know they're going to do it. I'm just kind of waiting to see if they're, gonna do, if they're not going to do it, but I'm like, this is going to happen. Yeah. And I'm yeah. like, ah, oh. and then every time like I see it happen. So there's a difference between knowing and experiencing. Yeah. So it's like seeing the thing happen in front of you versus the actual knowing the events are going to happen. Yeah. Here we um, are. Here now we, we got to yeah. go through the emotion. We've got to go through the emotion. Yeah. And it's deal like when, with what's going on. What's the shortest line in the Bible? Jesus wept. Yeah. Jesus knew he was going to die, mm -hmm. right? His cousin. And still, he, and he knew he was going to raise from the Lazarus. dead. Lazarus. Yeah. Lazarus. Yeah. And, yeah, sorry, I should have said that. Not his cousin. Lazarus. Oh, sorry. <laughs> John, but he did know John the Baptist was going to die yes. as well. No, no, but I'm, ta I'm talking about Lazarus. Sorry. Yes, I, I know. <laughs> I was like, um, Jesus' cousin did die. You were just mixing it up. Sorry, mixing it up. It's Anyways, fine. We all do the it. The point is, is that he knew Lazarus was going to die. He knew he was going to raise him from the dead, yet he still wept. Yeah. So that's supposed to, like, in the moment, like, he's still, like. Still going through the grief. He's still going through it. Yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah, either way. Okay, Corey. Yes. Genesis 19 is a viewer question. Okay. Okay. Oh, Genesis 19. Yeah, yikes. Okay, yikes. Yikes. So here we are. I never could understand that. It seems so brutal, but then I don't think back then women were important. You never hear about the female being born, just the males. Also, would God approve of the daughters sleeping with their father to preserve the family? And why didn't God intervene... Or was it okay with God? Also, so many questions. Back then, were there a lot? There were not deformities with mating with your relative. Right. Okay. Uh, sorry, I'm just writing yeah, myself. Yeah, there's a lot of questions. There. Notes. Okay. Right. Um, women were important. Okay, so Genesis 19 is very brutal. It's the Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot being rescued and Lot offering his daughters and terrible. Terrible. And it has to do with the societal pressures that were on Lot. And also, I think his morality that had taken a turn for the worse yeah. based off of where he was living. Um, so it's not that women weren't important. I mean, I can't speak to the, obviously, to the emotions of men who were living at the time or women who were living at the time. 
but they were living in a patriarchal society. So what that meant is that the oldest male family member, like as opposed to the government or something like that, the oldest male member of the family was responsible for the social, economic, and moral well-being of the family. So these were really tight family units. And of course, this can be a really good thing or a really bad thing, uh, just based off of human nature. And it's the same thing with governments. Like if you have a good government in power, like a good king or a good emperor, life is not so bad. It can even be pretty good. But then you get a, 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 a bad emperor, a bad king, or a bad government, and uh, you're in trouble and, and, and life goes poorly. So it's just a microcosm. The patriarchal society is just a, a, is just a, a different structure of human society. So that's the, the, in the ancient Near East where Lot is living, uh, it was a patriarchal society. So Lot was responsible for his entire family, including his daughters, uh, but he was supposed to treat any, uh, any person that he took, um, into his house, he was supposed to treat them like himself and to prioritize them even over him and his family's well-being. Now, to the morality of that, I don't even think I, I need to speak right now because the Bible's not even speaking on that. It's just showing, right? It's just showing who Lot was and, and what he prioritized. So, uh, um, the value of women, the value of men, the value of children, the value of that, that's more, I think, of a, of an individual thing. But yes, of course, um, men had legal rights in the ancient Near East where not all women did. Some women did, but not all women did. So it's a little bit of a, a, a little bit of a, of a tricky thing to parse out there. Um, in terms of you never hear about the females being born just the males because land and inheritance was passed on through the men. So the men never switched allegiances. They were always um, allied with their patriarch, okay? But when women got married, they could switch allegiances. So they would switch their allegiance then to their new male patriarch, which would either be their husband or their husband's father or their husband's grandfather, whoever was the patriarch, the oldest male member of that household. Okay. So that's why in the Bible, we normally, sometimes you do hear about the women, but you normally only hear about the men, um, especially when it comes to um, the, the tribes, because you have to remember that the land of Israel was divided out based off of those family gatherings. So the land stayed within the patriarchal head. I hope I'm explaining this in a way that yeah. it's like hard to kind of go out. So, so nor that is why it's because of their, their system of social organization. That's why. So it's not that the women were less important just based off of the structure, but they weren't recorded as often because they weren't, it wasn't necessary to can, record them. Can I also add another scriptural reason? This is what, this is my personal note that I think makes sure. sense. Sure. Okay. So another scriptural reason for why the men were recorded and the women weren't. I think it comes down to Genesis 3. So I'm going to read this just really quickly. Um, uh, when Adam and Eve fell, and then God gave the, the, the curses to Satan and then also the, uh, the consequences of Adam and Eve. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the, we got a he there. There's a he that comes around. Then after that, it says... Um, 
and talks about the woman. Uh, he says, your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. So you have this aspect here where it's like there's a man who's going to come, okay, who's going to, uh, who's uh, Satan is going to bruise his heel, but he shall uh, bruise his head. In other words, he's going to defeat him. So they're expecting a male uh, to do this, and also the male shall rule. So you have these two different things. And at, right after that, what do you have? After Cain and Abel, Genesis 5, you have genealogies recording the men. Why? They're anticipating a Messiah, someone to save them from Satan, essentially. Um, Satan, not essentially, Satan. And um, so they're expecting a Messiah, a savior of some kind, and it's supposed to be male. So they're tracking the male line down the road for that awaited king. That's the reason why it goes all the way down to Christ. It's from Adam, and it goes down the list, right? All the mm -hmm. way, because they're waiting for that Messiah, they're waiting for that Savior. So because of that, and that structure that was put in place because of the fall, man shall rule over you, and then they're waiting for that uh, Savior to defeat Satan. Um, I think that's part of the, it, it, what I've gathered, so there's scriptural reasons why the men were being documented. On top of that, as a side note, it's also the reason why I think that Adam has to be recent. It's totally off topic. But I'm like, <laughs> Because that prophecy, in order to have actual uh, effectual, effectualness, it needs to actually, like, for, that can't be 700,000 BC. For that, and that prophecy just kicked down the bucket in my head. That, that's even more miraculous. In my head, this is a recent prophecy that it, it, that's being kept in, through old tradition and through documents. And, um, and that's how we know about it, essentially, as opposed to it being like, you know, Anyways, anyways, that's a whole other session. But the point here is, I'm just trying to point out is that like even in scripture, there, there's there's a messianic appointment mm -hmm. that people are waiting for. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing to add into this whole thing. And and also originally, like to, to, to take some of the because I think I think there's this idea that women are second class citizens and that the Bible's good with that. Right. And that um, oh right. Right, right, right. There's that. There's that concept that that even some Christians take up today, yeah. which I think is really messed up. When you look at the image of humanity that God created, it was Adam and Eve together representing the image of God. Yeah. Woman by herself has part of the image of God. Man by himself has a part of the image of God. Together, we bear the image of God. Yeah. And and again, we're not living in a perfect world. So I'm not saying that you have to be married in no. order to bear the image of God. That is not what I'm saying. Hear me. Is that there's this unity that we are supposed to be striving towards. Right. And it's not supposed to be a weird competition where one of us is trying to get authority over the other and one of us is trying to find preeminence. It's supposed to be teamwork. Right. <laughs> and to add to that, it's because Christ is the, the bridegroom and we're the bride. Yeah. That is part of the image of God also. So it's yes. like when people think about, you say people, you know, it doesn't mean you have to get married, right? It's like, yeah, of course not, because they're married to Christ. Yeah. It's like the image of God. It's like that whole image. It's all, it's all there. But so yeah, I agree with you with that. Yeah. Yeah. And, but, and there were lots of women in the Bible that, are named and that rose to positions of prominence. Like there's the the wise women of the kings. There's um, Deborah, who is a prophet and a judge. Uh, Miriam, who was a prophet. And again, these women weren't perfect. I, they were people just like 
the men of the Bible who were great prophets like Moses, still not perfect, still didn't make it into the promised land because we're all fallen, right? We, we all share that. Men and women are made in the image of God and we are all of us fallen and we are all of us in need of a savior. And it's going to be okay. And uh, just because the Bible represents, like there are some really, really harsh places, especially we get into the judges where we do see brutal abuse of women. And here in Genesis 19, what, what could have been brutal abuse of women that seems to have been socially acceptable doesn't mean that the Bible is endorsing this. It's telling us yeah. what happened. The, we often call that prescribing versus describing. Yes, and we see what did God angel God's angels do? Right. They didn't let that happen. No, yeah. They right. saved Lot and his daughters, yeah. right? And they would have saved his wife too, but she made it, her choice. It's very dangerous to to mix those two, the prescription yes. with the description, because yes. a description inherently is neutral. Mm-hmm. You're just simply saying, here's the events that happened. Yes. And then prescription obviously is something like, don't do this. Yes. <laughs> Don't do that. It's a command of some kind. So, so yeah. she, all, this person also asks, um, would God approve of the daughters sleeping with their father to preserve the family? And why didn't God intervene? Or was it okay with God? Okay. So there's been a lot of ink, scholarly ink, spilled over this because it seems like by what the daughters say, it seems like they thought the destruction of the plane was God destroying the entire world. Like they literally thought they were the last two women on earth and their father was the last man. Listen to this. Um, now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was still afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, yada, yada, yada. And it happens. This is not a justification of what the women did, but it is potentially an explanation of what the women did, is them thinking that literally everyone's dead. And like this would explain what they're trying to do. So in their minds, this is a righteous act because they're trying to preserve the human race. This is a potential explanation of what's going on. In terms of is God okay with incest, I think that's answered by the Mosaic law, which outlaws incest. Right. Um, but yeah, that's yeah. And then, why doesn't God do anything? He doesn't do, he lets humankind make their own decisions a lot of the that's time. That's right. A lot of the time. And, and um, I think a lot of that is because he gave us free will. Right. And there is, I'm going to add this extra pushback to see if you have a point to this. Now, gentleman named 455, who we, we we always talk about in the comment section, add an additional point. So to this idea about this incest. Sure. So, okay, so we talked about Adam and Eve having sisters and all these things, right? Mm-hmm. Possibly marrying their sisters. So if God was going to outlaw incest to begin with, mm-hmm. why wasn't it, why did he create a world in which incest would begin? Mm-hmm. I was like, listen, I don't have an answer to this question. And I know I'm throwing this at you now. Yeah. But it's kind of related to this question because when we're thinking about the beginning of everything and that, you know, God set up a situation in a certain way, we often hear that, you know, the world is more pure. It was more genetically pure at this time or whatever. Yep. Right? And therefore, it becomes genetically impure. And therefore, that's kind of the reason why. Yeah. It was kind of like now, def- uh, you know, deformities, all these different things come in. Um, but yeah, so why would, if God foreknew that this was going to be the case? It's kind of a really abstract concept. Yeah, How because did... I'm not God. So <laughs> I can't go back and be like, here's his reasoning because he doesn't yeah. explain it in the scripture. Right. I don't I don't really know. 
Yeah. I don't know why he created a system the way he created it, other than maybe we're supposed to all, like maybe if he created it where we all came from different different pairs and different families, maybe we would just have a massive civil war because we would just hate each other and it'd become yeah. one big racist well, pile. I mean, look at the we, racism that has right. happened in human history and we've all come from the same family and yet we still manage to hate each other over our different family branches. Also to, well, it's it's one of those things where it's like, so we know that Adam and Eve, let's say they were created, right? If the humans were created sinless, mm -hmm. God can't make sin. Mm -hmm. So you can't just create like, so let's say he creates all these humans. So mm -hmm. then Adam and Eve, if I represent all of humanity, mm -hmm. for sin to enter the world and they blow it, but somehow everyone else is more responsible because Adam and Eve blew it. Yeah. Like that doesn't make much they sense. They have to be the, the, they have to carry on the sin. Yeah. yeah, right. So it's like, so sin enters the world through two people, but mm -hmm. you have, let's say you, God created a whole bunch of different other people so you didn't have incest. Mm -hmm. Well, then it's like, okay, well, then they're sinless still because mm -hmm. it's Adam and Eve who are sinning mm -hmm. for, for disobeying God. Yeah, I guess you could make, I guess you could make the argument that if God took wives for Cain and Abel out of their ribs, they would still technically be related to Adam and Eve. <laughs> yeah, I know. Because they came They're from the DNA of Cain related. and Abel. I know. Guys, I don't know There's why God no does good, some of the I don't, things I don't, he does. I haven't thought, you know, I, this is worth a comment <laughs> in the comment section. What do you think? Yes. What do you think? Because I didn't have an answer. What do you think? And I, I told them the reason why I think that it can't mm -hmm. be the case. Like mm -hmm. the reason why it has to be Adam and Eve need to be the sole progenitors of humanity. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I don't know about that that question. So that's a good one. Me neither. Uh, the very last thing that this person asks, also back then, were there not deformities with mate, from mating with your relatives? Yes, there were. Uh, we have evidence of uh, mutations based off of interbreeding in the mummies of Egypt. For example, different cranial issues, neck issues, spinal issues, uh, things of that nature. Um, there's evidence of um, six fingers, which is, I believe, an incest issue as well. Uh, from the time period of the judges and kings, which is interesting. Uh, so yeah, there is evidence of things like that. Um, yes, 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 but people still risked it. And and I, a lot of times they did, they would marry like half sisters or half-brothers or cousins to hopefully mitigate those risks. Yeah. But yeah, that's, uh, Corey, that would be my answer to those I questions. I have the last question for The you. last question! Genesis 27 from Linda D. Mm -hmm. Why didn't Isaac give the blessing to both of them, that's Jacob and Esau, uh -huh. since they were twins? Like, why does Esau get the benefit? Because like, you can't... There can only be one patriarch. You can't have co-patriarchs. So this goes back to the patriarchal system. So it's the, this is why the oldest got the blessing. So this is what, this is kind of what, okay, this is a little Boring. bit of my pet peeve, right. Linda, not you, but this idea that, have you ever heard in churches, people talk about how the firstborn gets the blessing? And they talk about that in our society today as if it's some sort of like natural law that the firstborn <laughs> child is the best child or the firstborn child receives like a double inheritance. And I'm always like, no. It's because she's second born. So we know. <laughs> I am the middle child. Maybe I have an ax to grind. Yeah. No, but what really bugs me is because we we forget why in that right. society, like there was a reason why they gave the firstborn a double inheritance and it wasn't just because they liked them best. It, was be it wasn't supposed to be because yeah. they liked them best. I'm sure in many cases it was. Yeah. But it was functional. It was practical. So only one person could become the next patriarch of the family, could replace their father. Mm. So Isaac needed one of the boys 
to replace him as patriarch of that branch of the family. Now, what ends up happening in a lot of these cases, and he knew would probably happen, which is why he could still give not the firstborn blessing, but another blessing to the other son, was that eventually the house would become too big to be sustainable with just one patriarch. So then the other son would also branch off and start his own branch of the family. So we see this with Jacob and Esau. We see this with the 12 tribes of Israel. Judah breaks off early uh, and then ends up coming back and leading the family of Jacob. So the firstborn received a double inheritance because he needed more physical resources to stay with the family unit so that he could continue to maintain that the, the right. family unit. And what's important about it too is that like, I've heard you speak about this before, so I'm just going to reinstate what you've been saying in the past, is that the patriarchal system itself, with the firstborn being the one who is going to lead everyone, yeah. is also not prescribed. It's described. Definitely not. not prescribed by God as, as endorsing as the model to use. And the reason why is so often you see Joseph, right? Even Jacob. So, David. Right? So many of the youngest mm -hmm. are taking the place of the oldest. Because right. God does, he, he's, he's challenging their culture, just right. like he challenges our culture, because there's no one human culture that is all right, that is like, right. we got it, we're the closest to, you know, it's, right. it's, we all have our problems. Right, yeah, that's right. We all have our problems, and it's so interesting that God subverts that. He's like, oh, this is what you expect, but here's what, here's what it's actually going right. to be, and he challenges it with a bunch of different in a bunch of different cases. And yeah, if you look does. for it as you're reading through the Old Testament, you will see it. You will see him challenging the system. Yeah, that's To get it. people to think. I, and I, I think that's the God drawing out of us that reaching for him. Right. That questioning for him. Why is this like this? You know, I, I, it makes me think of when Paul is speaking in Acts and he he talks about how God has placed us in the in the areas and the spaces and the times that we are in so that we would grope for him, that we would right. try to find him. And I think that's one of the one of the really cool aspects of the Bible is that if you're looking for that, you can see where God does that. Yeah. And challenges yeah. different cultures. That's really good. And also, yeah. but he doesn't do so just like chaotically too. It's always within like Yes. Uh, it's within a window, I should say. I don't know how do I just it's it's so, bookends. It's like he's not gonna go yeah. outside of what's morally right or anything like that. Exactly. Or, or outside of his plan. He's going to do like, uh, for instance, we talked about um, the man shall rule over you. We're talking about this. They're waiting for a, a male messiah. It's like, okay, so what does he do? He doesn't have, he has the youngest boy usurp the, the, the oldest boy, right? So he's, he's doing this pattern that's consistent, which is, I find really interesting. So he's not like, it's still breaking up the culture completely and standing it on its head to be like, look, your culture's not right. But he's still going to move forward with his plan that he's instituted mm -hmm. and the prophecy that he's established. So anyways, I just think that's interesting too. It is interesting. Yeah. What do you guys think? Let us know how you would have answered these questions. If you have any more questions for upcoming episodes, uh, <laughs> Malik's trying to whisper something to me and I have no idea. He's like, <laughs> I have no idea what he's saying. What are you saying? Subscribe. Oh, oh I, yeah. You I'm really bad at doing it. that. Uh, if you've made it this far, please subscribe to our channel so you don't miss any videos. Click the notification bell so that you won't miss anything. It'll notify you. Leave a comment or a question down below. And until next week, happy reading and happy studying. See you later. Thank you so much for watching. 
we want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.